Please sit comfortably, everyone. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, this is obviously the last talk of session that I'll give. And usually on the last day of session, I try to think of a topic that's relevant for all of us to take into our everyday life when session is over. And the title of this talk is Breaking the Addiction of the Inner Narrative. Um, we all have probably had the experience when we're sitting that we're just resting in neutrality and then some thought from the past comes up, maybe some um, past unresolved conflict or an irritation or a resentment or an injustice or something like that. And it comes into your mind and, and then you, you realise you're actually going over it again. You didn't realise, but you're kind of going into it and creating a little bit of a soap opera around it. And, um, and at that particular point, it's interesting what we do because if you're like me, um, there's a part of me wants to keep going. Right? It, it's kind of, it go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm caught in that, this is, and we're meditating. And, but there's a, there's a part that wants to go, oh yeah, but I just want to think about it one more time. Like I'll just go over it one more time or I'll take that little angle on it there or remember that thought about it. And, and the, nature, the nature of this inner narrative, of this constant thinking over the past or the future, um, whether it's got a, a, a worried element to it or annoyed element to it, um, it's addictive. It's an addiction. And, and it's consistent with Buddhist psychology that, um, that the, the cause of our problems in life are, are craving. That's the, usually the, the Buddhist word which is used, craving. Um, craving for something that's not here, something more, something more, something pleasurable, something right. And, and craving or addiction are, are synonymous terms. So really what the Buddhist, psych, Buddhist psychology is saying to us in many ways that we're, we're all addicted. We're addicted to something. If we're not a, a, being addicted to drugs and alcohol, you know, or gambling is a very extreme form of it. Um, it can be a very destructive form of it. But the Buddha's kind of saying we're all addicted. Um, and uh, we're addicted to our, you know, to pleasure. You know, we're addicted to good reputation, you know, avoiding a bad one, um, addicted to success, addicted to status, addicted to things going our way. And we're addicted to these ruminating thoughts of the self, the inner narrative self that keeps on chattering on all the time. And there is part of us doesn't want to let it go. And it's kind of crazy, just like it's irrational, like an, an addiction is, is irrational, but it's like we just want to go over it one more time. And it's a bit like in the same way that we want to keep going back and checking the emails. You know, oh, there just might be another one there. Oh, I just checked the news, something more interesting might have happened again. And we find ourselves checking and checking and checking. So it's a kind of an addiction, an obsession, and it's this getting caught up in this all the time is the self-centered dream that we keep on referring to. 
And so, <clears throat> to put it in stark terms, if you if you take up Dharma practice, it's kind of like you admit you're an addict, right? That's that's where you start from. You're you're addicted to something. I'm addicted to something. And then, like any addiction, our task is is to become non-addicted, right? To be able to to let go of what it is that we're we're craving, which is creating suffering. So giving up ruminating thoughts like that is a bit like give, giving up cigarettes, you know, or giving up gambling on the poker machines. And there's no, there's no simple way to do it other than just stop. I've asked many people over the years in counselling, like, how, how, did you, how did you give up smoking? Like, I've been smoking for 30 years. And they, and they kind of say, oh, well, you just pick a day and you do it. Uh, kind of there's nothing really complex about it but I suppose what leads us to giving up our craving giving up our addiction just like a an addict or an alcoholic decides to give up their substance abuse is that they just realize that they really suffer it's it's when when people with an addiction realize they're just suffering over and over again and so extremely it's kind of like I can't do this anymore you know and like people with physical addictions, they often, they might have some commitment to doing, they just keep relapsing over and over and over until a point comes when they go, no, I'm just closing the door on it. And, and they don't relapse anymore. Do you know, they may go for 20, 30 years, all of their life without, without relapsing into alcohol or drugs again. So we relapse. We, we relapse into negative rum, ruminating thinking or being in the future or being self-preoccupied. And part of the process, if you do it, just recognise what the underlying felt sense is, you know, when, when you keep um, feeding that addiction. Go there, you know, like in this sense of experience everything that happens. Just go, what's it like? When I keep going back over that resentment from 10 years ago, what's it like? And you go into the felt sense of it and it goes, well, it's, it's kind of just more irritating. You know, it's not satisfying. It just agitates me more. There's no, there's no rest from it. And, and it's by recognising what the consequence of it is all the time gives us the motivation to, to finally um, let it go. See, the, the kind of crazy logic of it is, is that if we think if we just go over it one more time, we're going to resolve it. But we don't. It just sort of digs itself in deeper and deeper. But that's the crazy logic. I'll just go over it one more time, then it'll resolve. Then, then my mind will be at rest. But it doesn't work that way. You, just get, you get more and more restless. And what our experience is, particularly during a session, you know, where we're doing more intensive practice is that we do we, we do focus on just being present and not feeding those thoughts and it gradually I think everyone you know has the experience one at one level or another of, of dropping down out of that into something restful and dropping into the the restfulness of the present moment and occasionally another thought comes up but it's not too strong and you let it go and you come back to that neutral place all the time. So it's kind of part of this process is recognising we want to keep on 
thinking those self-centered thoughts uh, part of it just keeps one wanting to do it and it's and it's the commitment to recognize it drop it each time which makes the difference now one way of there's different ways of working with these intrusive thoughts and one way of looking at them is in the same way that we have gradings of um, of physical disorders or, or mental disorders in psychology, which is simply that they're mild, moderate or severe. Right? So when you have mild thoughts happening, they haven't got such a, an emotional charge behind them, they're sort of light on. And if, if you recognise that they're kind of, you're ruminating, but there's, not a, there's only a mild kind of charge behind them, um, Probably the best way of dealing with it as a practice, the words to use, is cut it off. Right? It's not that it's not that strong. You know, it's something you can just cut it off and return to the present moment. And that's a sort of a more definite, you know, monjusri-like action with the sword, just cut. And that's what is encouraged in um, in the Koan Mu, in the commentary on the Koan Mu, is to cut off the mind road. So when it's mild, you can just cut it off and that's effective. But let's say you go up another level of intensity of emotion and, and restlessness in those thoughts and, and they're, they're moderate. Um, then cutting them off in such a sort of a sharp, quick kind of way may not be the best way or the most skillful way of dealing with that. Maybe then it's a matter of letting them go. Right, seeing them, just letting them go, rather than being so active about it. Just not feeding it and then it just fades out, you don't give it any more oxygen. So it's kind of a softer way. But what about when we get severely intrusive thoughts, you know, with sort of severe, strong emotions behind them, and they're just in so intrusive, no, no matter what we do, we just can't get rid of them, it's like a torrent coming through. If that is the case, perhaps the best skillful way of doing that is not to cut it off because it keep on back in, coming back again, not to let it go, but to let it be. So it's like they're so intrusive, you just can't stop the torrent coming in. So the best you can do is let it be there and step back and witness it, which is very different, as we know, from just being embroiled in the, in the drama. It's like there's a drama happening on the the screen in the theatre and you realise you, you're actually back here in the seat watching the battle zone, you're not actually in it. And that gives you a skillful way of actually dealing when you can't stop it. And eventually, like we all experience from doing extended sitting, I think everyone I've spoken to so far has experienced coming to a more peaceful state, you know, more effortless state of peace in their experience, which is wonderful to hear that. And then what can happen, we, we drop below the surface of the, the fight-flight mechanism, you know, all the little irritations and worries and so on. And as I talked about last night, we, we come into this more spacious place. And when you come into that more spacious place of equanimity, then you start to experience along with that feelings of love, um, kindness, compassion, joy, empathy for other people and equanimity. Those four immeasurables start 
to emerge there. What's important though, is that when you drop down to that level and you experience more of that equanimity, um, you can very easily get into this um, uh, relaxed state of mind where you go into other kind of fantasies and dreams. So and they may not be negative, destructive ones. They might be feelings of love or compassion, you know, or joy about something. I mean, you can build fantasies around that as well. You know, so you find yourself telling yourself funny stories, you know, or you, you find yourself having some romantic fantasy or something like that. But it's got a kind of a soft, generous feeling to it. It's important that when you get into that deeper level, that more spacious level, you don't get, you don't you waste that time then fantasizing out of positive feelings. By all means, experience the feelings, right? If they're there, if you experience joy or bliss or empathy towards others or connectedness, fully experience the feeling. But make sure you don't start spinning stories about it. Um, because you kind of, you you kind of, you're in an easy kind of state, but you're wasting the meditation experience. I used to do this years ago. I, you know, years ago, I, after about two or three days in a session, nearly always I get these really joyful feelings coming up. And and looking back on it, I wasted the time because I ended up using that joyful experience just to make up funny stories and jokes in my mind, right? Kind of a self-entertainment, but, you know, um, it's not deepening the practice. So there's a, there's a, there's a difference between ex- feeling those positive things as a, as a felt experience, but it's another thing to create another fantasy out of them, even though they may be more um, benign. So that's how it's important to bring this practice into everyday life, recognised as a, an addiction to the inner narrative, um, recognised as a, like any addict, we, we kind of want our fix, and kind of recognising the dissatisfaction that arises from it and then having some skillful way of letting go, cutting off the road, letting go, letting be, whatever it is you need to do to get back to the present moment. So that's the meditative mindfulness aspect of practice. And as we go back into everyday life, um, it's important that we're practicing the precepts as well to have a full practice. But another way of, of explaining or describing in very simple terms how we actually um, uh, practicing the precepts in everyday life is to commit to living in harmony. C- commit to living in harmony with the people you live with or your neighbours, you know, or the people you share the shopping centres with or the car parks with or the beaches with. Right? And, and to do your best to be in harmony with people around you or to be in harmony with circumstances too, with material things. Um, to be in harmony with things when they don't go your way, right? When when the cupboard doesn't open properly, you know, or the door gets jammed or something doesn't work, right? the fridge breaks down, whatever it might be, to have a, a sense of harmony 
with that as well. And to have a sense of harmony with other people, um, of course, does not necessarily mean having to be um, submissive or passive to other people all around. I don't mean that kind of harmony, you know, just sort of kind of got to acquiesce all the time to fit in. That's not what I'm talking about because we all have a need, whether it's in a political sphere or whether it's in a personal sphere, to um, to challenge things, you know, to be assertive about things, to have a voice, um, to stand up for injustice if it's happening or whatever. So whether it's in a political arena or whether it's in a personal arena, family, relationship, there still is a way of, of, of challenging something or, you know, raising an issue where you, where you do it in a harmonious way, you know, and that's where the skill of the precepts come in, you know, not indulging in anger, not criticising the faults of others, um, treating others with openness and possibility, not putting oneself above others. If you're practising all of that, um, then that gives us the, the baseline in which we can, we can harmonise with our life. When um, monks joined the, the Buddha Sangha in the Buddha's day, there would be three basic questions he would ask any new monk coming into the Sangha. Um, have you got enough to eat? Are you warm enough? And are, are you in harmony with your brothers and sisters? Right? It's, it's, it's up there. It's very, very important in the, in the whole process. So that's what we do as Zen practitioners. We not only meditate, but we, we, to the best of our ability, bring a sense of harmony to the, to all of the different varying circumstances that we have in our life. And it's circular. The more you meditate and drop below that fight, flight, irritable, dissatisfied experience, um, the more we generate feelings of love and compassion and joy and equanimity that we bring into our life at that feeling level. And the more we, in our actions, we um, work towards being in harmony with other people, um, the more our mind settles. Um, and when we, when we come back to meditation, we find that we're in a much more um, settled state. But if we're being in a lot of disharmony with people, um, then some ongoing agitation is what we bring in. But of course, conflicts happen with people all the time that we can't, can't necessarily resolve. And sometimes you make mistakes, right? And you apologise, but the other person doesn't forgive you, right? Or something comes out of the blue that you can't do anything about. Just on a personal level, I won't go into the details, but during the course of session, um, I got quite a, a verbally abusive email from a person I used to know. And, um, and so you just read it and you don't respond. There's no need to respond. You know, to respond is just to justify yourself or keep the agitation going. Sometimes the best way of harmony is to do nothing mm -hmm. rather than add more oxygen to the conflict. Um, but what is important, we all make mistakes you know, in, in things that we do. And, and uh, what is important is that we recognise that when we, when we have and that we have created disharmony that we're, we're ready to apologise.
or if someone comes to us with an apology that we're, we're ready to forgive. Um, they're such important things. None of us are perfect, we make mistakes, but that, that, that process of apology and forgiveness is so important to bring about harmony and emotional repair again. So all of those things um, are the, the nature of practice that we take back into everyday life.